I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An ingenious scam to rig a game of chance. This was definitely an inside job. Who would ever suspect him? A mysterious creature that terrifies a town. People are really freaking out. Surely there has to be something nefarious going on. And a passenger plane haunted by the spirits of a dead flight crew. I did not want fear to control me. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hershey, Pennsylvania, also known as the sweetest place on Earth and home to the Pennsylvania State Police Museum, where the heroic deeds of those who fight to keep the state safe are celebrated. Amidst reminders of lawful design sits an unassuming relic of a game of chance. It's made out of paper, not much to it, pretty flimsy. A lottery ticket, one which museum historian Thomas Memmi knows is inscribed with some sinister digits. The winning numbers for the Knights Daily Lottery, in that case, it was 666. This simple scrap of paper harkens back to one fateful night when millions of Americans played their favorite game without the slightest idea it had been rigged. So who orchestrated America's only known state lottery fixing scam? And how did they do it? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, April 24, 1980, 7 p.m. Roughly 6 million hopefuls tune in to local station WTAE-TV for a potentially life-changing broadcast. The nightly lotto drawing for the three-digit game, The Daily Number. It was a very popular show uh, in Pittsburgh. Tickets were only a dollar, but if you bought a whole bunch of them, there's your chance of winning a lot of money. For those viewing at home on the edge of their seats, the draw seems totally normal. As usual, numbered ping-pong balls are held aloft in transparent containers by a stream of circulating air currents. But despite these routine beginnings, things are about to take a perplexing turn. Balls come to the top of these machines, and it's just six, six, six. The number of the beast. After the draw, a handful of individuals come forward with an unusually large number of winning tickets. The payout from that evening's lottery was the largest ever. It was $3.5 million. It seems a vast number of tickets had been purchased for specific number combinations. The Department of Revenue realized there was a lot of play on sixes and fours. 
officials decide something is up. As rumors continue to circulate, WTAE employees replay a video of the drawing, and they notice something shocking. The fours and sixes were more buoyant and staying to the top of this plastic case. Making those balls more likely to be pulled. Was the daily number rigged? Suspecting foul play, the state attorney general's office begins an investigation. And it's not long before they have their first real lead. There were certain ticket vendors that realized there were an exorbitant number of fours and sixes, these, these series of numbers that were purchased by two individuals. The two suspicious ticket purchasers are identified as two brothers named Peter and Jack Marigo. They and members of their families, as well as certain agents of theirs, purchased over 10,000 lottery tickets on all combinations of four and six. The brothers are indicted and confess to being part of a plot to fix the lottery. In exchange for a lighter sentence, the brothers agree to name their co-conspirators. WTAE's stagehand, art director, and even a state lotto official are indicted for their involvement. This was definitely an inside job. But according to the brothers, the shocking mastermind of the whole operation is the most unlikely of persons. The host of the Pennsylvania Lottery Drawing, 64-year-old Nick Perry. Nick Perry was actually a very popular guy in Pittsburgh. People loved him. Such a nice guy, and he would do a lot of work for charity. Right away, Perry claims he is innocent. But the conspirators allege the opposite. They told their story that he had come to them with the idea. Who would ever suspect him? So how did they claim he did it? Another artifact at the Pennsylvania State Police Museum reveals the secret behind Perry's plot. A set of white ping-pong balls with the infamous numbers 666. This was the key to Nick Perry's plan. Ring the balls and win the lottery. Perry's brilliant scheme had been centered on a simple theory. That he could influence which numbers the air-powered machines would select by making certain balls heavier than the others. But that was easier said than done. The art director experimented with different items that he could add to the ping-pong balls to make them heavier. Mercury, the talcum powder, to water, to Vaseline. Finally, after countless failed attempts, Perry's art director concocted the perfect solution. In the end, the station's art director decided to use white latex paint injected with hypodermic needles. The conspirators made a duplicate set of balls and weighted them all, except the numbers four and six. It's not just pulling it off, it's getting away with it. That's the hard part. After seven days of testimony from 35 witnesses, the jury found Nick Perry, the former MC of the Daily Number game, guilty on all counts. Though still maintaining his innocence, Nick Perry is sentenced to up to seven years in prison for rigging a public contest. The art director and stagehand plead guilty in exchange for lighter sentences. And for testifying against Perry, the Marigo brothers avoid jail time. Today, despite the triple six fix, thousands still purchase lottery tickets just like those on display at the Pennsylvania State Police Museum, hoping that today will be their lucky day.
in the high deserts of Grand Junction, Colorado, is a rustic institution that boasts one of the finest firearms collections in the nation. This is the Museum of the West. We have Kid Curry's pistol. We have a Native American rifle. We have Annie Oakley's pistols. But curator David Bailey believes the weapon most laden with intrigue also has the most obscure origins. It's an 1862 Colt police model pistol. The pistol itself is in very bad condition. The stock is rotted away. What part did this weapon play in a gruesome death match between two desperate men that ended with one being named the Colorado Cannibal? April 1874, Colorado. An exhausted man stumbles out of the woods and into a mess hall near the town of Gunnison. When he emerged from the forest, he was haggard, kind of disoriented. His name was Alfred Packer. Locals approach the stranger and question him. He says that two months earlier, he was leading a group of gold prospectors into the remote mountains when suddenly a snowstorm set in. With heavy snow blocking their path, the prospectors were forced to take shelter in a ravine. Trapped for weeks, their provisions ran out. They were starving to death. They had taken their moccasins off and ate their moccasins. Packer explains that he left the group in search of help, but to no avail. And when he returned to the camp, he was met with a grisly sight that would change his life forever. All of his fellow prospectors were dead, except for one, a man named Shannon Bell. He saw Bell hunched over a fire cooking something in a little tin cup. And according to Packer, Bell was eating the flesh of the dead prospectors. Realizing he'd been caught devouring his companions, Bell sprung into action. Bell jumped up with a hatchet, ran at Packer, and Packer had a small pistol, and shot Bell, but it didn't stop him. The gun was lost in the shuffle. They wrestled for the axe. Packer got the axe and hit him and killed him. Packer insists it was an act of self-defense, but those who hear his tale become suspicious. At the scene of the crime, they find all five men dead of hatchet wounds. And that's not all. One pivotal piece of evidence is missing. They didn't find the the gun. They immediately wonder, is this man telling the truth? Did he kill Bell in self-defense? Or did he actually kill all five men to save himself from starvation? Locals conclude that Packard did murder his party. He is arrested and put on trial to face a second fight for his life. Packer said at his trial that the only man that he did kill was Bell. But his protests fall on deaf ears. He is convicted and sentenced to 40 years in prison. People thought, we've got the cannibal, life can go on again. When Packer dies in 1907 at the age of 65, it seems his legacy as the Colorado cannibal is set to live on in infamy. That is, until one fateful day almost a century later, when museum curator David Bailey uncovers a new piece of evidence that will break the case wide open.
It's 1874. Five gold prospectors have been found hacked to death in the Colorado wilderness. The convicted killer? A man named Alfred Packer. But Packer maintains his innocence until the day he dies. So, was he really guilty? Or did someone else murder the five men? Packer always maintained that he surprised the real killer. Fellow prospector Shannon Bell, eating his murdered prey. And that he only shot Bell to defend himself. But because no gun was found at the scene, no one believed him. Then, in 1994, Museum of the West curator David Bailey stumbles upon an odd artifact found in the Colorado wilderness in 1950. I was doing the inventory of the collection, and one of firearms had a little 3x5 index card that said, this was found at the Packer murder site. Could this be the missing gun Packer claimed he used to defend himself against a murderous cannibal? If I could prove that this was Packer's gun, then I'd have a crucial piece of evidence in the case. As Bailey inspects the gun, he immediately finds a clue. Until his dying day, Packer maintained that he shot Bell twice. And the gun in the collection has exactly two empty chambers. As Bailey digs deeper into the case, he finds another lead. Because of the long-standing interest in the Packer story, the skeletal remains of Shannon Bell had been stored at a local historical society. So I thought, what if we could test that um, forensic evidence and see if there is a piece of a bullet? Bailey takes samples of Bell's skeleton to the high-tech microscopy lab at Colorado Mesa University. There, they inspect the decomposed remains inch by inch. And finally, they find what they've been looking for. They found a fragment of the bullet. This bullet residue proves that Bell had indeed been shot. But did the bullet that killed him come from the gun in the museum? The team compares the bullet residue from Bell's corpse with one of the bullets still lodged in the museum's pistol. And the results are staggering. The lead in the gun and the lead on their body was the same. Not only had Bell been shot, but the bullets in his body came from the gun found at the scene. Our best evidence showed that Packer was telling the truth. Bailey believes this evidence is enough to cast considerable doubt on Packer's conviction 94 years after his death. Today, at the Museum of the West, Packer's gun sits among the firearms collection, a symbol of one man's brutal struggle for survival and redemption. Armored vehicles, scuba gear, submachine guns, these aren't just any old weapons of war. They once belonged to the most elite fighting force in the country, the U.S. Navy SEALs. Today, these items are on display at the National Navy UDT SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, an institution that celebrates these warriors and their work. The SEALs are the men who can do it all. They are sea, air, land. They go in, they take care of business. According to curator Ruth McSween, one particular artifact in the collection perfectly showcases the SEAL's no-nonsense attitude. It weighs about 10,000 pounds and is 20 feet long. We like to refer to it as a big orange pumpkin. This is a U.S. lifeboat. 
complete with chilling scars of combat. Who fired upon this vessel? And what role did it play in one of the most harrowing and heroic stories in recent history? It's 2009. 53-year-old Captain Richard Phillips is piloting the 17,000-ton cargo ship Mersk, Alabama, through the Indian Ocean. On April 8th, he and his 19-man crew are a few hundred miles from the coast of Somalia, when suddenly they spot a speedboat heading straight for them. It takes only a moment to realize what this could mean. Pirates. Captain Phillips had been commanding ships for over 20 years. He was quite aware of the dangers in the water. Heavily armed pirates from nearby Somalia have a history of trolling these waters for cargo ships they can hijack for ransom. And the Mersk, Alabama is no match for the fast, light speedboat. These large, heavy cargo ships just don't have the maneuverability to outrun these speedboats. But Captain Phillips has trained for an event of this nature. He sends a distress call to the military and orders the engineer to power down the ship then instructs the crew to lock themselves in the hidden safe room while he prepares to confront the pirates. Once the pirates get on board, they go up to the bridge and, and they'll take over the captain. The pirates demand that Captain Phillips change his route and rush full speed ahead to Somalia. But Phillips explains that the ship is broken and won't be going anywhere. They're demanding the captain do something, fix the boat, get the crew up do all these things. Phillips pretends to comply with the pirates' demands. He radios to his crew. But they've been trained to stay in the safe room, despite the pirates' violent threats. They were getting aggravated. They realized things weren't going quite the way they wanted it to go. But just as the hijackers decide to abandon ship and head back to Somalia, they realize that is no longer an option. During the boarding, it seems, their skiff had overturned. To their amazement, their speedboat had sunk. Thinking fast, Captain Phillips proposes a new plan. So he said, we will take a small lifeboat and put it in the water for you, and you can leave. In order to show the pirates how to operate it, Phillips boards the lifeboat. But when he tries to return to the cargo ship, he finds he's been tricked. They wanted their ransom money. They took off with the captain on board. Philip's crew realizes that their captain is now a hostage on the lifeboat. Will he make it off the vessel alive? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. While crossing the Indian Ocean, the cargo ship Mersk, Alabama, is hijacked by Somali pirates. The ship's captain, Richard Phillips, is taken hostage in a lifeboat. Will the pirates be caught? And will Phillips make it out of this ordeal alive? With the pirates gone, the crew of the Maersk, Alabama, powers up the ship and waits for the military to bring help. As the Navy races to the scene, Captain Phillips' life hangs in the balance. He's going through extreme torture with these, these pirates. They're starting to use death rituals like little games that they would play. The atmosphere is extremely, extremely tense. Finally, 20 hours into the hijacking, the Navy reaches the lifeboat. Right away, they begin negotiating the safe release of the captain, offering the pirates radios, food, and clothing. But what the pirates don't know is that the Navy has ulterior motives. The Navy would approach the vessel they would always eyeball and make sure that uh, Captain Phillips was in a certain seat so they would have the visual. These so-called proof-of-life checks are critical to the Navy's plan because hidden on a nearby ship is the most elite group of snipers in the U.S. military, the Navy SEALs. If there's any sign that the captain's life is in immediate jeopardy, they won't hesitate to strike. If you were in danger and you wanted somebody to come rescue your behind, these are the guys you want to call in. And that moment arrives on day five of the standoff, when suddenly a pirate is seen pointing his rifle at Captain Phillips' back. Now they know they need to do something. Captain Phillips' life is in immediate danger. The SEALs need to take out the pirates and fast. But they are 100 feet away in rolling seas and there is no room for error. The SEALs have to make sure that they kill all three pirates at the same time. They can't miss because the pirates, they may kill the captain. All three pirates are shot dead. I can tell you that they took more than one shot each, that each shot hit their target. Captain Phillips is completely unharmed. Navy SEALs 3, Spy Parts 0. Okay. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank You're real. You so much. As the nation celebrates a successful end to the standoff, a much-relieved Captain Phillips returns to the U.S. And the lifeboat finds a new home here at the SEALs Museum, where it reminds visitors of the harrowing ordeal that was brought to an end by the heroic and steadfast efforts of America's most elite warriors, the Navy SEALs. In the beach metropolis of Miami is a museum dedicated to celebrating South Florida's proud past. This is History Miami. Deep in its archives, is an artifact that is tied to one of the darkest days in Miami's aviation past. It's scuffed up. It looks like it has burn marks on it. History Miami curator Joanne Hippolyte knows that this is more than just a damaged, rusty sheet of metal. 
This artifact is actually the interior floor panel from Eastern 401. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 ended in disaster, claiming countless lives, including the pilot and engineer. And many believe that after their deaths, the spirits of these men lingered on. But is the plane's wreckage really haunted? And how were remnants like this linked to some of the most bizarre ghost sightings ever recorded? December 29, 1972. Holiday travelers board Eastern Airlines Flight 401 and prepare for a comfortable ride. Eastern Airlines was one of the first airlines to invest in the jumbo jet. One of these jumbo jets was the L-1011 TriStar. The state-of-the-art aircraft has a computerized system that can fly and land the plane. In the hands of a seasoned crew, Flight 401 takes to the skies. Mercy Ruiz was an attendant on that fateful flight. I had been flying close to two years. It was just a normal, normal trip. After more than two hours in the air, Flight 401 engages the landing gear as it approaches its final destination. But there's a problem. The landing gear indicator light doesn't illuminate. Now the crew must determine if there's a problem with the landing gear. If the landing gear isn't down, that's a life or death situation. So they had to figure out what exactly the problem was. The plane is put on autopilot and the crew scrambles to identify the problem. As he reached to inspect the indicator light, it's thought that the pilot unwittingly grazed the steering column, accidentally disengaging the autopilot. Unbeknownst to the crew, the plane's altitude slowly begins to fall. The plane was descending at an, a slow, steady rate, so they didn't notice that it was approaching the ground. Flight 401 plunges into the Everglades. The force of the impact rips the plane apart, hurling some passengers out of the cabin. Rescue workers rush to the scene and pull victims from the swamp. Miraculously, 75 people survive. But 101 people are dead, including the pilot and engineer. Over time, some of the surviving crew members, including Mercy Ruiz, return to the skies. Even though all of this happened, uh, I went back to flying because I did not want fear to control me. Months later, life for Eastern Airlines crews returns to normal until a flight attendant reports a strange occurrence. The chief flight attendant, she saw a pilot in uniform sitting in a seat. That seat was supposed to be empty. Others reportedly recognize this man as the captain of Flight 401, the same man who died just months earlier. Then, suddenly, the strange but familiar figure disappears. The only thing that I could think of is that it was the spirit of this pilot that was dead. Other Eastern Airlines staff report eerily similar sightings. Except it's not the fallen captain they claim to see. It's the engineer. Is the crew of Flight 401 haunting Eastern Airlines?
when an Eastern Airlines flight crashes into the Everglades, more than 100 people are killed, including the pilot and engineer. Then, months later, surviving crew members claim to see their falling co-workers on board other flights. Could the dead flight crew be reaching out from beyond the grave? 1973. As reports of sightings spread, it's rumored that the airline forbids its employees from discussing the occurrences. But Eastern Airlines crew members reportedly begin keeping track of the mysterious appearances. And notice a pattern. All of the ghost sightings occur on a particular type of plane, L-1011s. Why would the spirits of these men seem to only materialize on this kind of aircraft? The answer may lie in the very plane they died in. December 29, 1972. In the wake of the crash, rescue workers sift through the wreckage. The airplane was so absolutely torn to pieces. Parts like this floorboard, now on display at History Miami, lay strewn about the swamp. And several still intact electronic components are reportedly salvaged. An airplane like that, it has very expensive parts. These parts are allegedly used to repair other Eastern Airlines aircraft. Years later, it's said that maintenance personnel made a stunning connection. The sightings of the captain and the engineer occur only in L-1011s that have been repaired with spare parts from Flight 401. Mercy Ruiz believes this may explain why these planes were allegedly haunted. Those energies of these people sort of were embedded in the parts of the airplane, and that's, that's why they were able to materialize. While Eastern Airlines publicly denies its planes are haunted, they reportedly removed the salvaged parts from their L-1011 fleet, though the airline denies these claims. Over time, reports of ghost sightings stop. While the true nature of the bizarre sightings aboard Eastern Airlines flights may never be known, this floorboard at History Miami reminds us of the tragedy of Flight 401 and the passengers and crew members whose lives were lost, but whose spirits may go on somewhere. The deepest coral reef exhibit in the world, a colony of African penguins, and an indoor rainforest. These fascinating sites can all be found at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. But in this museum's vast homage to all things living is one creature that's been dead for decades. It's a creature that science reporter David Perlman believes may be the most inconspicuous of the collection. It's a very peculiar looking thing. And they have this kind of big toad-like mouth. But how was this peculiar beast involved in one of the most unlikely Cold War scares in U.S. history? Summer 1984. The Bohemian houseboat community of Sausalito, California, seems as quiet as ever. 
Sausalito is a picturesque old fishing village. Along the shore, there are probably at least a hundred houseboats crammed to run right next to the other. Then, suddenly, one balmy evening, a strange sound rises from the water. It sounded like an airplane. It's a kind of loud buzzing noise, sort of like... Residents are jolted from their sleep by this ominous humming noise. They've never heard anything like it. Hum. Sort of like that. By the next morning, the people of Sausalito are the ones buzzing. What was that strange sound? Immediately, theories abound. Some speculate it might be a haywire electrical transmitter or the drone of illegal sewage disposal. Other theories are a little more sinister. People were absolutely convinced that the Army Corps of Engineers was actually conducting some kind of secret research underwater. But the most ominous explanation is one centered around the sworn enemy of the United States, the Soviet Union. In 1984, relations between the U.S. and Russia had become increasingly strained. A major fear at the time was Soviet nuclear experiments. And there are reports that the Russians have dispatched stealth super submarines to patrol the North American coastline. Soviet submarines were scoping out the United States, just as our submarines were scoping out uh, Soviet areas. Could the haunting hum be the sound of Soviet submarines patrolling San Francisco Bay? Houseboat owners started complaining to government agencies, and nobody knew what to do. Night after night, for several weeks, Sausalito residents are terrorized by this peculiar noise. But no one, including local authorities, can figure out what it is. And then something truly unexpected happens. It stopped. And nobody knew why it stopped. Houseboat residents breathe a sigh of relief and slowly resume their tranquil way of life along the water. That is, until July 1985, when suddenly the hum returns. Could the underwater spies be back for more? It's 1985. A mysterious humming noise from beneath the ocean is haunting a houseboat community in California, and no one can figure out what it is. With the Cold War raging on, locals begin to suspect the noise is coming from a hidden enemy. Could this hum really be the work of Russian spies? People are really freaking out because, of course, this mysterious noise is back. Surely there has to be something nefarious going on. They tried every government agency there was, and nobody could solve this mystery. After the government fails to find the answer, residents decide to conduct their own investigation. They hire acoustic engineers to take audio samples from under the water. They dropped a microphone into the bay and started to map the locations of any kinds of underwater sounds that were present. For weeks, they compare audio recordings of the hum 
to sounds made by machines around the bay. And the research does yield one somewhat perplexing result. The humming sound is not machine-made. Their findings rule out transmitters, sewage pumps, and submarines. Engineers and locals are stumped. That's when they called in John McCosker, the expert from the Academy of Sciences. McCosker specializes in all things that live in the ocean. And when he hears the recording of the sound, he knows in an instant what is making the noise. He told the people, it's the toadfish. Known as the humming toadfish, these creatures, which grow up to a foot long, typically live in the Pacific Ocean along the West Coast. And every summer, they perform a certain ritual. When the toadfish are mating, uh, the, the male fish will produce uh, this loud humming noise, trying to attract any female fish that might be swimming away deeper at sea. The result is a near-perfect A-flat. They hum because that's a very sexy call. On occasion, the toadfish inhabit shallow waters, nearer to land, where humans can better hear their mating call. The funny thing is there were sporadic reports about this that go back to the 1800s. But in the 1980s, with the Cold War raging, this mysterious hum seemed far more sinister than it really was. Today, the California Academy of Sciences holds on to this elusive toadfish as a preserved reminder of a red scare that one small town won't ever forget. Situated on the shores of Prince William Sound is Valdez, Alaska. The picturesque town sits amidst the mountains and bays that make up the state's natural beauty. But at the Valdez Museum, one artifact on display reminds visitors of a much less peaceful time in this town's past. It's solid metal, weighs about 80 pounds. It's a section of a hull removed from a ship that once navigated these waters. A ship that museum curator Andrew Goldstein says was at the center of one of the worst man-made disasters in history. This was, at the time, the largest oil spill ever to occur in American waters. The ship's name has passed into infamy, the Exxon Valdez. So what really caused the Exxon Valdez oil spill? It's March 23, 1989. A fully loaded Exxon Valdez carrying 50 million gallons of crude oil is pulling out of the Port of Valdez, Alaska, on its way to Long Beach, California. But less than three hours later, the supertanker smashes into nearby Bly Reef, punching holes into the tanker's hull and spilling its precious cargo into the pristine waters. Oil was gushing out of a massive hole in the side of the ship, and there was little the crew could do. Over the next five hours, Nearly 11 million gallons of crude oil pour uncontrollably into the ocean. The impact is immediate. 
Thousands upon thousands of birds, fish, and other wildlife were severely injured or killed. And this environmental disaster quickly spreads far beyond its point of origin, covering 1,300 miles of coastline. It's a full-blown catastrophe that will change Alaska forever, leaving many to wonder, how could such a monumental accident actually happen? It's 1989. The oil tanker Exxon Valdez has run aground off the coast of Alaska. Millions of gallons of crude oil are gushing into the ocean, triggering an environmental catastrophe. What caused this disaster, and could it have been avoided? Investigators arrive on the scene and discover that this catastrophe isn't simply a case of bad luck. In fact, a startling story begins to emerge starting with the behavior of the ship's captain, Joseph Hazelwood, a veteran seaman who had operated oil tankers for more than 20 years. He was a very well-regarded man. Uh, people thought very highly of him and spoke very highly of him. Hazelwood had navigated this route dozens of times without incident. But on March 23rd, as the nearly 1,000-foot-long ship entered Prince William Sound, it quickly encountered a serious problem. Hazelwood saw icebergs in the shipping lanes. Icebergs were coming loose from a nearby glacier. To avoid the oncoming ice, the tanker steered out of its normal path. Hazelwood moved the ship outside of the established shipping lanes in order to avoid impact with those icebergs. All seemed calm and back to normal, but unseen trouble lurked directly ahead as the ship steered straight toward a shallow reef. They realized they were going way off course and did not have time to correct that. The ship charged into the reef, violently tearing open its hull and unleashing an environmental catastrophe. But why would an experienced captain, someone who has done this route countless times before, be so off course? Investigators discover that at this crucial moment, the captain was not at his post. Captain Hazelwood wasn't actually piloting the vessel. He had gone below deck. And in his place, Hazelwood left his inexperienced third mate in charge of the ship. Some have questioned whether the third mate was capable or qualified to command such a large ship. And that wasn't the only thing amiss that night. The Coast Guard's Traffic Control Center in Valdez operates a radar system to warn ships when they are too close to perilous land or glaciers. But the radar system was outdated, leaving the radar operator unable to track the tanker when it was off course. They had been attempting to get the radar repaired for almost a year. Without an adequate radar system on shore and without an experienced captain at the helm, Investigators conclude that the ship headed straight for disaster. It wasn't any one cause. It was the confluence of many smaller mistakes that all coalesced into this perfect storm. In the wake of the spill, Captain Hazelwood is convicted of negligent behavior, and the Exxon Corporation is forced to pay over $500 million in civil damages. In the years following the tragic disaster, as Alaska slowly rebuilds, a faint silver lining emerges. 
when the federal government passes the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. As a result, I think Prince William Sound is in fact one of the most protected marine environments in the world. And today, a piece of the hull from the Exxon Valdez is on display at the Valdez Museum. A reminder of the terrible cost this pristine wilderness once had to pay. From menacing pirates to lottery scams, humming fish to haunted plains. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.